I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today's reading is Matthew chapters 5 and 6, and Luke chapter 6, verses 17 to 36. Now, these passages deal with the Sermon on the Mount, which introduced the kingdom of heaven. This message was preached between the second and third Passover feast of Jesus' ministry, probably somewhere up in Galilee during this period of time. There's some things you need to know about uh, the message of the kingdom which was preached by Jesus before you read this passage. So let me tell you all about the kingdom message. Many people misunderstand aspects of this sermon by Jesus because they don't place it in the proper context. The context here is quite vital. First of all, Jesus came as the Messiah to establish the kingdom on earth, the one that was prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. Of course, it had been prophesied by Daniel and Isaiah that the Jews would reject the initial offer, but nonetheless, the offer had to be made to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Now, if the Jews had accepted Jesus as their Messiah, the Davidic throne would have been restored at the first advent of Jesus, the Messiah. That brings us to the second major contextual consideration for this passage, and that's the religious leadership. The priestly families were the Sadducees. They denied two major scriptural doctrines, that was, the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the body. That doesn't leave much. What makes this even more ironic is the fact that they controlled the priesthood, claimed to be the descendants of David's high priest, Zadok. Then there were the Pharisees. They believed in the supernatural, all right, and they believed in all of the Old Testament. Their problem was that they had become an elite class of picky, picky religionists. Over the years, they had handed down extra-scriptural traditions, which they orally appended to the Law of Moses, having given these oral traditions and laws the same weight as the written Mosaic Law. They flaunted their law-keeping practices in the faces of everyone else. In their eyes, nobody was as righteous as they were. If they were, they'd be Pharisees too. Of course, there were the Herodians, but we don't find much written about them. They were more like Sadducees, but their zeal for the ruling family of the Herods was their distinction. So, meet your religious leaders. They were corrupt before God. That's why John the Baptist addressed them as a generation of vipers in Matthew chapter 3 and Luke chapter 3. And that's why Christ said in John eight forty four, Ye are of your father the devil. As a matter of fact, Jesus mentions the Pharisees in this discourse in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, when he says, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, nonetheless, they controlled Jewish thought and practice in the day when Jesus ministered. They had taken law-keeping and made it a standard of righteousness. The real standard of righteousness is acquired through a personal relationship with God. Always was, always will be. Genesis 15.6 says of Abraham, And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Spiritual righteousness has never been attained by keeping the law, but the Pharisees have manipulated it to make it appear that way. For all effective purposes, the Pharisees and Sadducees had established a false religion. 
So what was the kingdom on earth to look like? Let's look at what we know as the new covenant outlined by Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Here's what it says. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So, what about the Messiah who was prophesied in the Old Testament? Well, now let's take a look at Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Now, more about the Messiah is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And you've got to listen to some of the wording here as Isaiah tells us about what to expect with regard to the future Messiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Based upon these Old Testament prophecies, then here's the question. What will the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, same term, look like? Well, here's what we know from those verses of Scripture that we just looked at. It'll be headed up by the Messiah, the descendant of David and ruler over the earth, in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Furthermore, the Messiah will control the worldwide government. We saw that in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. The Messiah will be God manifested bodily on the earth. Again, Isaiah chapter 9. The law of God will be ingrained inwardly within people rather than compliance to a written law. We saw that in the New Covenant, the verses found in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. This is, in fact, the way believers today are controlled by the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, per the new covenant that we just looked at, everyone will be saved. So let's recap the circumstances in Israel when Jesus began ministering. Jesus is the Messiah. The religious system over the Jews was corrupt. This corrupt influence over the Jewish masses caused them to reject Jesus as Messiah. The Old Testament prophecies detailing the Messiah's suffering were at hand. However, the Jews were offered the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. They could have accepted it, but they rejected instead. This sermon, frequently known as the Sermon on the Mount, characterizes the difference between vain religion and true righteousness. The Sadducees and Pharisees practiced vain religion, but they also controlled the religious practice of the Jewish masses. This sermon highlights their hypocrisy and their inconsistencies. This sermon lists the qualities of true righteousness, kingdom-appropriate righteousness, I should say. 
This kingdom being offered is the kingdom on earth prophesied by the Old Testament prophets with the characteristics that we just listed earlier. Now let's look at what are known as the Beatitudes in two passages of Scripture, Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6. First, let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now let's look at the same message, but this time from Luke's perspective, beginning in Luke chapter 6, verse 17. And he came down with them and stood in the plain in the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil, for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in the day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Now first of all, Let's establish that both of these accounts record the same occasion of Jesus' preaching. At first, notice the Matthew designation in the King James Version where it says, And he went up into a mountain. That would seem to be different from Luke's uh, description of the locality when he says, Stood in the plain. Actually, the Greek phrase in Luke's account specifically records a topos. The Greek word means place with the adjective modifier of pedanos, which means level to the feet. In other words, while on the mountain, Jesus chose a spot level enough for the people to stand and listen. In order to properly understand these verses, you must understand the section that we talked about a little earlier with regard to the kingdom message. Both Matthew and Luke are giving an account of the same sermon given by Jesus. People today commonly refer to the blessed verses contained in these chapters as the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude means supreme blessedness. Notice that Luke's list is considerably scaled down as compared to Matthew's list. Many people think way too hard when they read these Beatitudes. Just think of these as kingdom equivalents to the fruit of the Spirit that we find in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. 
Together they form a view of the characteristics of those who are kingdom-appropriate people. Don't use these as standalone action result items. In other words, being meek by itself does not result in inheriting the earth, as in entering the Davidic kingdom. However, people with a heart relationship with God are led by God to exhibit the characteristics found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 10, and Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26. Consider this. Luke's abbreviated account of this message as compared to Matthew validates the fact that one should understand that these verses address general attitudes about godliness rather than specifics. As I said, sometimes people think way too hard on these so-called beatitudes. Now notice something with me. These attributes of kingdom-appropriate people fly in the face of the lifestyles of those Sadducees and Pharisees. As a matter of fact, these leaders were all about doing. They would have scoffed at the very idea that God is more pleased with the attitudes reflected in verses 2 through 10 of Matthew chapter 5 rather than their doings. I am certain that this passage was written as a stark contrast between fake righteousness and true righteousness. True righteousness is a heart fellowship or relationship with God. It's not a compliance checklist as was practiced by their contemporary Jewish leaders. In other words, in this passage, let's observe all the things that the Sadducees and the Pharisees are not. However, when a believer is led by the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and 23 is manifested in his life. That's the love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Therefore, a life directed by the Holy Spirit captures the qualities, captures the essence of what we know here as the Beatitudes. Jesus takes a subtle shot at the hypocrisy of the Jewish leadership in verses 11 and 12. Persecution is inevitable, just like the persecution experienced by the Old Testament prophets. So here's a question. Who persecuted the Old Testament prophets? Well, the answer, it was the Jewish leadership. And who were Jesus' prosecutors? Who were his persecutors and his critics? You guessed it, the same Jewish leadership. In verses 13 through 18 of Matthew chapter 5, we find a section that's not dealt with by Luke. And here, it's the same Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus talks about example living. Verse 13, You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven." Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. The multitude of people this day listening to Jesus, they're told that the true believers strive to be examples. They are the light of the world. 
Moreover, they add the missing component of salt to the world. Literally, the light of the Messianic kingdom and the flavor or the salt will be manifested through those who have honest and sincere relationships with God. In contrast, of course, to the Pharisees who simply comply with the law of Moses. Then Jesus explains the role of the Mosaic law. His declaration in verses 17 and 18 brings into view the new covenant that we talked about, prophesied by Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. That new covenant cannot take force until the requirements of the law are fulfilled. This passage is a prophecy of Christ's necessary death on the cross to fulfill the sacrificial requirements of the Mosaic law. Many remove verses 17 and 18 out of their context and promote a doctrine that erroneously requires Gentile believers to keep the Mosaic Law as a condition of continued salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, let me just say flatly, that's wrong. Look closely at what Jesus is saying here. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Here's an important concept. But let me emphasize it by asking a question first. Did Jesus fulfill the law when he died on the cross? Well, if your answer is no, then tell me what Paul meant when he said in Colossians 2.14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Well, here's the irony for those who think the law of Moses is necessary in one's life to continually find favor with God. Here's the irony. Virtually none of them actually keep the Old Testament law in its entirety. I've written an article under the topic section of BibleTrack.org entitled, The Sabbath. Take a look at that article. And you'll see that many Christians who talk about keeping the Mosaic Law, they don't keep the Sabbath day. Here's exactly what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. The death of Jesus on the cross fulfilled the requirements of the Old Testament law. And that's exactly what Paul is emphasizing in Colossians 2.14. A correct perspective on believers' relationship to the law of Moses Well, that's just vital for complete understanding of the kingdom message, the one that was preached by Christ during his earthly ministry. In verses 19 and 20 of chapter 5, we get a sobering declaration from Jesus. Verse 19, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he should be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. The composition of the attendees this day are your common everyday Jews. There's no record of even a sprinkling here of Pharisees. Yet they still get dishonorable mention in verse 20 with regard to their practice of the Mosaic law. Jesus says that they're just simply falling short. If there were any present, verse 20 had to simply inflame the Pharisees listening to this message. He says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter in the kingdom of heaven. What? 
They were supposedly the most righteous people living, but not so. The Pharisees and scribes were corrupt. Jesus and John the Baptist both had said so. Well, if these picky, picky Pharisees are falling short, then what chance does anyone else have of finding favor before God? Now, you must understand the meaning of the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven as we see in Matthew and Luke's accounts. You can't grasp the meaning of these two verses, verses 19 and 20 of Matthew chapter 5, or the whole sermon for that matter, unless you understand the difference between the life and grace that we live today looking forward to heaven and the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven message that Jesus was preaching to these Jewish people before his crucifixion. These terms, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, do not describe heaven above. So when that kingdom is established, who resides there? Those residents are to be made up of those who have an authentic heart relationship with God according to the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And it's not those who simply appear legally compliant with the law of Moses. It is in that context that these Pharisees get their dishonorable mention. If this concept of the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven is confusing to you, then I'd suggest that you look at the written notes of BibleTrack.org and read the introduction that I outlined earlier in this podcast to get a full grasp of what the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God really is all about. Now we're going to look at chapter 5 of Matthew, verses 21 to 37. And we're going to talk about these hypocritical Pharisees. Are they really keeping the law? Verse 21. Ye have heard it said of old time, Thou shalt not kill, that whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council, and whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift." Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that the whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that the whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Again ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, 
neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Well, these comments that were introduced, first of all, in verses 19 and 20, they're intended to serve as an indictment against the legalism of the Pharisees. They practiced actions while ignoring the condition of the heart. To them, it was all about doing, law-keeping. These verses accentuate the sinful conditions of their hearts and show exactly that. They show this. While they appear to keep the law, in reality, they fall miserably short in heart and attitude. So, in making his point, he gives us these examples that we just read in this passage. If you read the passage again, you'll see that the Pharisees were, in actuality, way guilty of violating the spirit of the law. The examples that Jesus lists in verses 21 to 37 here are designed to emphasize the failure of the Pharisees to actually keep the law in verse 20. Keep in mind, the Pharisees were all about outward compliance. To them, righteousness was compliance and had nothing to do with attitude. Jesus emphasizes that outward compliance falls short, way short, as a standard for righteousness because of the wicked motivations of one's heart and mind. It is ironic that Jesus means to use these verses to expose the hypocrisy of the falling way short Pharisees. But many misdirected believers today use these same verses to add a new layer to the Mosaic law for their fellow believers to keep. Here's the bottom line on these verses of Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 37. And it's found in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 that says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In this passage, Jesus means to expose the wickedness of the human heart and thus emphasize the need for authentic righteousness. When we pick through the list of sins found in these verses, then identify and promote abstinence from them as an enhancement to our personal righteousness, I'm just afraid we've missed the point Jesus was making to these hypocritical Pharisees about the very nature of sin. Now, with that in mind... Uh, let's take a look at the concepts of sin that Jesus deals with here. First of all, he says, anger with another without cause is akin to murder, in verses 21 to 25. Then he says, to have sexual thoughts about a woman who is not one's wife is akin to adultery, in verses 27 to 30. Then he says, the common pharisaical practice of divorce and remarriage, well, that's also akin to adultery, in verses 31 to 32. Now, if you want additional insight on this issue, as Jesus taught it, look at Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12, and Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. There's a link on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today's reading that will take you right there. And then lastly, Jesus addresses their abuses of the concept of the Old Testament oaths. Oaths were very, very sacred in the Old Testament. Read the chapter in Leviticus 27 and see how very, very sacred to the Jews these oaths were. Jesus seems to be listing some common abuses of the law of Moses by the Pharisees themselves in these verses and their shortcomings. In other words, they were all about doing and the appearance of compliance, but with corrupt hearts before God. 
In the next section, Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6, we're going to look at some verses that talk about how you'll treat your enemies. First, let's look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 38. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if a man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and for him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you, and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil, and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just, and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now let's look at the same comments, but this time from Luke's perspective in Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 27. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto them that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful, and to the evil. Be therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Here we see another interesting characteristic of the Sadducees and Pharisees. They were all about vengeance. Jesus introduces this section with a reference to the Old Testament laws regarding punishment for bodily harm when he says in verse 38, "Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He, of course, is making reference to Exodus chapter 21, verse 24, and also Leviticus chapter 24, verse 20, and add to that Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 21. These Sadducees and Pharisees practiced vengeance to an extreme Long-suffering wasn't even in their vocabulary. They were all about getting even. They overlooked the compassion components in the law of Moses, jumped right on into the punitive. Jesus mentions a few examples of the compassion found throughout the law of Moses in verses 39 to 42. The Sadducees and Pharisees continually sought to murder Jesus. It wasn't just Jesus. They seemed to take joy in persecuting those who, in their opinion, fell short in keeping their rendition of the law. Notice verse 43 when he says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. The first part there is based upon Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. 
Of course, there's nothing in the law of Moses nor rabbinical literature that endorses hating one's enemies. I suppose the Sadducees and Pharisees had just inserted that as part of their own oral tradition. However, there's no question that these Jewish leaders had a hatred toward what they considered Roman oppression. And what do you call the attitude that resulted in the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, here's the reality. They felt completely justified in hating that which did not forward their cause. What's more, they had a disdain for the little people, so to speak. Those people who did not practice their own brand of Judaism to the same extent as they did. As you read through the gospel accounts, which record the confrontations between Jesus and these Pharisees, you'll begin to see that Jesus is pointing out their enormous hypocrisy. Their love for others outside their own circle of influential Jewish leaders was virtually non-existent. Jesus introduces a new concept not found in the law of Moses, per se, in verse 44 when he says, But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus is, as was stated previously, introducing true spirituality to a group of people who had only been beaten over the head with doing and with vengeance. Now we come to Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus takes on the issue of prayer and fasting done properly. Chapter 6, verse 1. Take heed that you do not your alms before men, to be seen of them. Otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou dost thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father which is in secret. And thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore likened to them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of, before ye ask him. After this manner therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Well, it's obvious that everything Jesus has taught so far flies in the face of the practice of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But he's not done. 
These hypocrites, these Sadducees and Pharisees, they do their alms, meaning help the needy, only when it enhances their reputation. They want to be seen and praised for their actions. Notice verse 2. Their reward is the glory of men, and their reward does not come from God. And then there's the issue of public prayer. Who are those guys that periodically during the day stop what they're doing and begin chanting repetitive phrases out loud in the presence of everyone? Why, those guys are Pharisees. That's one of their badges of honor. That's their way of elevating themselves above the rest of the Jewish populace, the little people. That's their way of saying, we're holier than any of you. Jesus says, here's the deal on prayer. Real prayer is done in private, and it isn't comprised of a series of recitations. Real prayer is communication from our hearts to God's heart. Jesus insists, don't recite phrases as a substitute for prayer. Now, here's the ironic part. Jesus gives an example of a prayer with meaningful components in verses 9 through 13. He's demonstrating prayer that is from the heart and prayer that's meaningful, not one of reciting memorized phrases. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's really the Lord's model prayer. And so what do people do today with this model prayer? Well, ironically, they memorize and recite it as the Lord's Prayer. They do so as a substitute for real, heartfelt prayer. Now, just admit it. That is ironic, isn't it? Incidentally, the prayer we pray in public before a meal is for the purpose of identifying ourselves with Christ as our Savior, not for the purpose of lording ourselves over others as the Pharisees did. It's a heart thing, you see. By the way, Jesus also proposes this model prayer much later in Luke chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. There's a carefully chosen term in verse 7 that I want you to look at. It's the word heathen. It's from the Greek word ethnikos. That word usually refers to pagan Gentiles. It is interesting, though, that Jesus refers to prayer in the synagogues in verse 5 as he refers to the practice of these Pharisees. It would appear that Jesus intends for these hypocritical Pharisees to be likened to the heathen Gentiles when they do their repetitious prayers. What about forgiveness? Verses 14 and 15. We'll see as we read through the Gospels that the Pharisees were not known as big-time forgivers. Forgiveness of the weaknesses of others would only serve to diminish the importance in their minds of their extreme pursuit for righteous-looking reputations. So, what about fasting? Well, we see that in verses 16 through 18. In the Old Testament, the Jews only fasted on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 to 31 tell us that. And also Leviticus chapter 23, verses 27 to 32. And again in Numbers 29, verse 7. Later on, when the Jews returned from their Babylonian exile, four other annual feasts were observed by the Jews. We see that in Zechariah 7. Zechariah 8. We see from Luke chapter 18, verse 12, that some of the Pharisees fasted twice a week. We have no idea why, but here we get a sense that they did it for recognition, as spoken by Christ here in verses 16 through 18. Jesus tells them to fast if they want to. However, if they're looking for their fast to hold any weight before God, 
They'd better stop doing it for men's praise and start doing it as a personal matter between them and God. Now, if you'd like a complete overview of fasting, look at my written notes on Isaiah chapter 58. That brings us to Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 19. Talks about our rewards and where they lie. Verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye, and therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness! No man can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Verses 19 to 34 here drive home a spiritual concept foreign to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It's not about show, it's about pleasing God. And these folks were all about show. In that process of show, their treasures were being laid up on the earth rather than in heaven. In verses 22 and 23, it's the eye that provides the light for one's body. Blind eyes provide one with only darkness. Obviously, the metaphor here refers to spiritual light as opposed to spiritual darkness or authentic righteousness compared to fabricated righteousness, just like the corrupt leaders of that day practice their corrupt religious practices. You must choose one or the other. Verse 24. Is your master to be the praise of others, or is it to be the praise of God? Jesus encourages his audience to demonstrate a true relationship with God that ignores haughty appearances and lays up treasure in heaven. In verses 19 to 21, and again in verse 33. This message quite honestly, flies in the face of those pharisaical practices that the people had observed in their day. In the remaining verses here, Jesus encourages a life of dependence on God. The point is this. We don't really have control over the events of our lives anyway. Only God does. Therefore, being in sync with God is a key 
is the key to a life of righteousness and joy. The rest, well, it's covered in verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. When one's first priority is pleasing God, all the right stuff follows. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walter.